I invite you to take your Bibles now and turn them to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We'll look at chapter 3 and verses 1 through 8 this evening. The sermon is entitled, The New Birth. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, would you give your full attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is the Word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, as we've just heard from the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Spirit blows where He wishes. The Spirit is active in the world. So we pray that as your word is read and preached this evening, the Spirit would be active among us. That there would be a, a kind of whirlwind, a spiritual whirlwind in our midst that is moving our hearts away from sin and toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Reinvigorating our faith and our love for Him. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, beloved, this evening we continue our series through the gospel according to John. Last time, you remember, we heard Jesus teaching on the significance of the incarnation and His as-yet-future resurrection from the dead in the context of the cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem. And we learned that Jesus' humanity, His human nature, is the new, the last, the final the eschatological dwelling place or temple of God with man. One thing that makes John's gospel unique is his narration of several lengthy discourses or teachings from Jesus in more intimate settings. It's something that I love about the gospel of John. In our text for this evening, we encounter the first of those discourses as Jesus teaches Nicodemus about the nature of the new birth as a prerequisite for saving faith. And he offers his teaching to correct Nicodemus's understanding. And so we'll divide our text along those lines into two sections. The first, verses 1 through 2, where we see the misunderstanding. And then second, verses 3 through 8, we see the teaching. So the misunderstanding and then the teaching. Let's look, look again at verses 1 through 2 where we see the misunderstanding. The text says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know 
that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. What the evangelist now reports about Nicodemus is connected with what he just said in chapter 2 and verses 23 through 25. So if you back up just a little bit in the text, you'll see what the text says. There were some in Jerusalem who appeared to believe in Jesus after they saw the miraculous signs and wonders that he was performing in and around Jerusalem. So the text says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. I say they appeared to believe. The text says they believe, but it's apparent they appeared to believe in him because of what comes next. The text says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, the faith that these people professed was not a true and lively faith. It was not a saving faith. It was a hypocritical, it was a self-righteous faith, which is why Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Nicodemus is an example of such a person and is likely functioning as their de facto leader in the moment which is why he says, as he addresses the Lord Jesus, we, we, we know you are a teacher come from God. After all, who better to evaluate Jesus than a fellow teacher, especially one who sits on the high council? Notice two things about the way Nicodemus is described here, beloved. First, he's described as a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were a politico-religious party of Judaism, which emphasized the meticulous keeping of God's law as part of the ground for one's justification before God. They controlled the synagogue system, which was scattered throughout Judea and the Roman Empire, and they were hardliners who were opposed to any kind of cooperation with the Roman authorities. Their rivals were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the party of the Levites and the priests. They controlled the temple in Jerusalem and were willing to cooperate with the Romans for the sake of keeping their positions of power. Jesus had just cleansed the temple. He had just cleansed the temple, a move that would have troubled the Pharisees deeply, but not so much, or pardon me, troubled the Sadducees deeply, but not so much the Pharisees. In fact, Jesus' cleansing of the temple may have even invited the sympathy of the Pharisees for a brief time, which is, I think, possibly why we see Nicodemus approaching Jesus at this particular moment. Now, second, notice the way John describes Nicodemus as a ruler of the Jews. That means Nicodemus wasn't just any old Pharisee. Nicodemus was one of the 70 elders that sat on the high council in Jerusalem, the council that was known as the Sanhedrin. Now, later in chapter 7 and verse 50 of John's gospel, Nicodemus will defend Jesus during such a council meeting, and eventually Nicodemus will help Joseph of Arimathea bury Jesus' body after his crucifixion. And so, though this conversation doesn't Uh, doesn't suggest that Nicodemus has come to faith yet, 
it's apparent that at some point along the way, Nicodemus comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is born again by the Spirit from above. And this is all we know about the man Nicodemus. The text says Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Now, much has been made about whether his coming to Jesus by night signifies a sinful fear of man. That is, Nicodemus came by night in order to perhaps hide his interest in Jesus from those who might object to it. And that's possible, but neither John nor Jesus mentions anything of the sort in the text. It's just as likely that given both their busy schedules, the night was simply the best time to have a more intimate meeting with Jesus. Nonetheless, whatever Nicodemus's motivation, given the way John has already used the images of light and darkness, you remember as he described the incarnation of the Son of God back in chapter 1 and verse 5, I think it's likely that he sees a deeper significance in Nicodemus, Nicodemus's nocturnal visit. The spiritual darkness, the spiritual darkness that blinds Nicodemus and desperately needs enlightenment is perhaps fittingly signified in the fact that he meets with the light of the world at night. Nicodemus addresses Jesus as rabbi, meaning teacher. Now, this was a term of respect and collegiality. Nicodemus recognizes that Jesus is a fellow teacher of God's law, like him. Nicodemus was a rabbi. Nicodemus likely had disciples that he taught. And Jesus is a rabbi who also has disciples that he teaches. And so Nicodemus, as he addresses Jesus as rabbi, he is showing him respect. He is, he is uh, uh, behaving uh, with collegiality towards, towards his fellow rabbi. But notice what he says next. After addressing Jesus or anyone really as rabbi, one would expect a question. One would expect, who are you? Tell me about yourself. Where are you from? Who taught you? Who did you learn under? Or perhaps, what do you think about this issue or that issue? But Nicodemus asks no question. Instead, Nicodemus offers a confident, and as we're about to see, overconfident declaration, we know. We know that you are a teacher come from God. Now, Nicodemus and the others that we've already mentioned from chapter 2, verses 23 through 25 there, Nicodemus and the others don't believe Jesus is a false teacher, but they believe he's a true teacher. He's a teacher come from God. But if he's a true teacher, the question is raised, will he align himself with the Pharisees or with the Sadducees? Nicodemus then explains how they know he's a true teacher, saying, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, to his credit, Nicodemus understands the way signs and wonders work. 
They are given by God as a visible manifestation of the power of God for the purpose of validating the Word of God as it is taught to the people of God. And that's why God empowered Moses to perform such signs and wonders during the Exodus. That's the first occasion in which we see signs and wonders in redemptive history. Nicodemus gets that right, but he gets something else, something even more fundamental, wrong. Nicodemus understands the way signs and wonders work in relation to the confirmation of the Word of God. No one can do these signs and wonders that you do unless he is a teacher from God. But he misunderstands the way signs and wonders work in relation to saving faith. Is merely seeing such signs with the natural eye a means by which God creates faith in the hearts of sinners? This is a theme that comes up throughout Jesus' public ministry. It comes up throughout John's gospel. It's one of his major themes. You remember, this is the way Jesus concluded the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You remember the rich man is in hell, and he begs, he begs Abraham to send Lazarus back to warn his brothers that they don't end up in hell with him. And do you remember what Jesus says, Abraham says to the rich man. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Even if they should see someone raised from the dead, they would not believe. So what is the means by which God, the outward and ordinary means by which God creates faith in the heart? It is not seeing signs and wonders, even a resurrection with one's natural eyes. That's not enough to do it. It's simply hearing the Word of God, heeding the Word of God. Nicodemus seems to think that by virtue of the signs and wonders he's witnessed, he has trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those that were just mentioned in the previous verses have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, simply because they saw the signs and wonders. But as we've already noted, one of the major themes of John's gospel is seeing is not believing. Seeing is not believing. In order to believe, we must see in a whole new way. In order to believe, we must see spiritually. And seeing spiritually is the result of the effectual call, also known as regeneration or the new birth. Every human being since the fall has been conceived in the estate of sin. And if left to themselves, every human being would remain blinded to spiritual things, unable to accept spiritual things, always rejecting spiritual things. The Apostle Paul teaches us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 14 when he says the natural person, that's the, the person who hasn't been born again, the person who hasn't been regenerated, the person who hasn't been effectually called but remains under the power of sin and the estate of sin, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able, notice that, not just he doesn't, 
but he can't. There is a moral inability there. He is not able. It's another way of saying he is blind to these things. He is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So only those who have been given eyes to see by the Spirit can trust and love the goodness and power of God in His works of redemption, the greatest of which, of course, is His sending of His Son into the world to take on human flesh. And that brings us to verses 3 through 8, where we see the teaching. The teaching. We move from Nicodemus's misunderstanding, which will become even more apparent when he responds to Jesus' teaching in the moment, to the teaching of Jesus to correct Nicodemus. Look at verse 3. The text says, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus often uses the phrase truly, truly, or verily, verily, or perhaps your translation says amen, amen. That phrase indicates that he's about to say something very important, and thus it alerts the hearer to pay very close attention. And so, whereas Nicodemus came to Jesus with a confident declaration about what he and others thought they knew about Jesus, essentially saying, I say to you, Jesus now turns this around on him, saying essentially, no, I say to you, I say to you. And Jesus then teaches Nicodemus the truth. Whereas Nicodemus has just confessed to have essentially believed in Jesus, believed that Jesus is a teacher come from God because of what he saw with his natural eyes by way of Jesus' miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus teaches him that he's actually blind. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, unless one is born again, he is blind to the kingdom of God. Now, this is the only time the phrase kingdom of God is used in the whole gospel of John, just this one time. So what is this kingdom of God about which the Lord Jesus speaks? Well, the kingdom of God, as we look at Holy Scripture, as we look at the teaching of Scripture on the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is the sovereign rule of God over His entire creation. He is the sovereign. He is the King who rules over all things. And that sovereign rule is revealed generally in God's works of creation and providence, and especially through the giving of His Word and the sending of His Son and Spirit for our salvation. So as Jesus performs miraculous signs and wonders during His public ministry, the sovereign rule of God over His creation is visibly revealed. But though it's visibly revealed to many, it can only be seen truly by some. Some see the signs with their natural eyes, and they may marvel for a moment, but they never understand their true spiritual significance, while others do. So what makes the difference? 
Why is it that when Jesus multiplies the loaves and fishes in John chapter 6 and feeds the people in the wilderness, we read just afterward, he leaves them and goes to Capernaum and they come following him, but they're following him for the wrong reasons. Why do they not see the sign and say, this must be the Son of God. I will believe in him. I will bend the knee to him. Well, because, again, seeing is not believing. And so they come to Jesus and he rebukes them. He seeks to correct them, saying, don't seek the food that can only fill the belly. And that's when he gives the the great, I am the bread of life discourse. Another one of those fairly lengthy discourses in a very intimate setting. And what is the the heart of that discourse besides the fact that Jesus is the true bread from heaven, that if any are to have eternal life, they must come and eat of Him? The heart of that discourse is all that the Father gives to me, the elect, will come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. That's the effectual call. That's the new birth. And so this is a major theme in John's gospel. This is a question that John will revisit throughout his gospel. Why do some believe unto salvation and others do not when they're exposed to the exact same data, the exact same experience, at least outwardly speaking? If someone were to come into, here, into this room tonight, maybe, a, maybe two identical twins, they hear the same gospel, one leaves converted, the other does not. Why? What's the difference? Is it in the person? Is the difference in the person or is it somewhere else? This is one of the main apologetic purposes of John's gospel as he seeks to explain, very much like the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 through 11, John feels the weight the weight of the apologetic argument, if Christ really is the Messiah, why have most of his own people rejected him? That argument comes with some amount of weight, and you can see it. You can see it in John's gospel. You can see it in Romans 9 through 11. And so John explores that theme throughout his gospel. Why do some believe and others don't? When they're exposed to the same exact special revelation. And so Jesus tells us why. He tells Nicodemus why. Unless one is born again, he says. Unless one is born again. The phrase that's translated born again or born anew could also be translated born from above. The original Greek is ambiguous, and that may be the point. That may be intentional. To speak of being born again or born anew indicates the kind of birth in view is different from the first birth that everyone experiences, namely the natural or physical birth. Born again, born anew, the second birth. To speak of being born from above indicates that the kind of birth in view is supernatural and spiritual, which is the special work of God's providence. And so it's really just two ways of two, looking at it from two different angles. 
This is what's traditionally been called regeneration or being created again, being made a new creation, or sometimes we call it the effectual call. In fact, we teach our children from Shorter Catechism, question 31, what is effectual calling? And the answer that we teach them to recite and to understand is effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to us in the gospel. This is what Jesus means by being born again. The gospel is freely offered. There's the general call. Why do some believe and others don't? The effectual call. Only the elect are effectually called in due course of time. Earlier in chapter 1 in verses 12 through 13, John introduced this very subject. You remember what he said. He said, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To be born again is to be born not of blood, that is, not by the human nature of one's natural parents, or by the will of the flesh, that is, by the sexual desire of one's natural parents, or by the will of man, that is, by the the planning of one's natural parents. But it is to be born of God. You see, it is a different kind of birth altogether. This is the prerequisite for saving faith. This is the gift of God that we might truly, spiritually see His kingdom. We might see His sovereign rule in His works of redemption for us. Look at verse 4. The text says, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Ironically, Nicodemus' response to Jesus' teaching confirms confirms the truth of what Jesus just taught. Because Nicodemus is still spiritually blind, he thinks that Jesus is talking about natural birth. Interestingly, this is a recurring theme in John's gospel that runs alongside and accompanies his focus on spiritual blindness and the need for enlightenment. On multiple occasions, we find the Lord Jesus explaining the invisible nature of his person and work using metaphors from the visible realm. And so later in chapter 4, you remember, he'll teach the Samaritan adulteress, the Samaritan woman at the well, about living water, by which he means the Holy Spirit. Now, she initially thinks he means actual physical water, but he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And then later in chapter 6, he speaks to the crowd, as I already mentioned, about the true bread from heaven and about eating his flesh and drinking his blood by which he means believing in him. But they think he's talking about his natural body and a natural kind of eating. And then again, later in chapter 8, he teaches the crowd about true slavery and freedom, by which he means spiritual slavery and the power of sin. And he contrasts that with spiritual freedom from the same. But the crowd thinks he's talking about natural slavery and freedom, and they seek to put him to death, you remember. 
In these and many other ways, Jesus is misunderstood by those who cannot see because they haven't yet been born again. Look at verses 5 through 6. The text says, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So, Jesus now connects what He just taught about the new birth with the images of water and the Spirit. Now, the fact that Jesus is appealing to something tangible, something physical, to explain a spiritual reality should come as no surprise. Again, as we make our way through John's gospel, this comes up over and over. But what does Jesus mean by being born of water and the Spirit? There are many different interpretations of this passage. Some have taken him to be referring to baptismal regeneration. In other words, they believe he's teaching that when a person is baptized with water, in that exact moment, he is also regenerated. In reaction to that teaching, some believe that when Jesus says born of water, He doesn't mean the water of baptism, but the water of the womb, that is, the amniotic fluid of the womb. And so, born of water, they would say, is the same as born of the flesh or physical birth. Now, both those interpretations are possible, but neither is preferable. Neither is preferable. What we must remember when interpreting difficult passages like this is context is king. We have to begin by asking the question, how does John use the images of water and spirit in his gospel? And what we find is that he uses water as an image of the spirit throughout his gospel. We need only look to chapter 4 to see this. In the very next chapter, the living water that Jesus promises to give the Samaritan woman is clearly the Holy Spirit and not physical water. But this is no new metaphor. From the beginning, we see God associating water with the work of the Spirit. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, the Bible begins this way. The text says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There it is. So, the work of the Spirit is closely associated with water in God's work of creation. In this case, the Spirit forms and fills that which was formless and empty, which is represented in that passage by water. Now, scroll forward from there. We get to the Noahic flood, and God sends the waters of judgment down upon the world. He does a work of decreation, if you will, in order to do a work of recreation on the backside of it. In Genesis chapter 8 and verse 1, the text says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The word that's translated wind there in the Hebrew is the same word that's translated spirit. Jesus will appeal to this connection in John chapter 3 and verse 8. And so we see in God's work of redemption, 
in his work of new creation, a close association between water and the Spirit. We can scroll forward again to the Exodus. How does God save His people from the Egyptian army after they have left Egypt behind? They're now in the wilderness, and the army is bearing down on them. He does it by dividing the waters of the Red Sea with a strong east wind. Again, that word that's translated wind there is the same word that's translated spirit. Exodus 14 and verse 21 says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And so we see the work of the wind or the Spirit alongside the parting of the waters. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 1 through 2, Paul teaches, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So the Apostle Paul connects the Red Sea crossing with baptism. It's interesting. There is a text in which clearly babies are being baptized. And this is it. Was it just the adults that went through the baptism of the Red Sea? No. All of Israel went through the Red Sea. All were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. Paul connects that crossing with New Covenant baptism. The Apostle Peter, you remember, connects the Noahic flood to New Covenant baptism. And so, I think we do see a connection here with baptism. Just as the Spirit's work of old creation and new creation was associated with water, the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters at the time of the old creation, and then in the new creation, the, the, the Spirit involved in, the, in the, the wind that pushes away the water of the, of the flood, the wind that divides the Red Sea, these images that come up over and over. So the same is true with Christian baptism. Christian baptism is a sign and seal of the Spirit's work of regeneration. Not because the person who is baptized is immediately regenerated in that moment. But nonetheless, when they receive baptism, regeneration is signified and sealed to them. That's what Jesus means, I think, when he speaks of being born of water and the Spirit. It doesn't mean that going through the water equals regeneration. Ham wasn't regenerated by the flood, and most of Israel wasn't regenerated by the Red Sea. It simply means that water is a sign of regeneration. It is a sign of that initial moment of cleansing that the Spirit does in the hearts of those who are effectually called so that they might have eyes to see spiritually the kingdom of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I believe Jesus is speaking of Christian baptism here just in a tangential way. But the deeper principle in view is the Spirit's work of granting the new birth. 
which is signified by those old covenant watery deliverances. Jesus focuses Nicodemus's attention on this when he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So later in chapter 6 and verse 63, Jesus will teach His disciples saying, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. And I think that's what he means now. That which is born naturally, that is of the flesh, is natural. That which is born spiritually, born of the spirit, is spirit. So in order to see the kingdom of God in Christ and therefore believe one must be born of the spirit. Look at verses 7 through 8. The text continues, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus now mildly rebukes Nicodemus for marveling at what he's just said. You can imagine Nicodemus's jaw has dropped a bit. What do you mean? I must be born again. These are things that Jesus clearly believes Nicodemus should have already known. Of course, as we've seen most likely in part through the Old old Covenant connection between water and spirit, but also we might even look back to a text like Deuteronomy 30 where Moses is very clear that the fundamental issue with Israel is the need for the circumcision of the heart. Not that the flesh would be circumcised, that's one thing, and that's important, but the more important issue is the circumcision of the heart. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He also appeals to the connection between the wind and the Spirit. And we just saw that as we made our way through the, uh, the old creation account in Genesis chapter 1, and then uh, the account of the Noahic flood, the new creation account of the, new, new, uh, of the, uh, Mos- the Noahic flood, and then the the exodus from Egypt. So Jesus appeals to the connection between the wind and the Spirit. Both water and wind are images of the Spirit throughout the Bible. And they are fitting images because they're, in most respects, powerful and uncontrollable, yet invisible natural forces. No one controls water when there's enough of it in motion. And no one controls wind when there's enough of it in motion. And the same is true for the Holy Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes, and so the Spirit grants the new birth to whomever He wishes. You see the focus here on the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, in granting the new birth. The wind blows where it wishes. You have just as much chance of commanding the wind to do this or that as you have of commanding the Holy Spirit to do this or that. You have just as much chance of telling the wind, stop blowing now or start blowing now. And having that happen, than you have of saying to God, grant me the new birth. And he grants it in response 
to your request. It's interesting. I had a professor in seminary who, who said, you know, I don't want to make a big deal about the sinner's prayer. He was a good guy. He was basically reformed. Um, but he said, uh, I don't want to make a big deal about the sinner's prayer. But you know, the first prayer a sinner ought to offer to God is not, God, will you save me? Because you can't actually offer prayer in, in faith apart from having already been saved. He said, the first prayer a Christian ought to offer is, God, thank you for saving me. Not, would you please save me? I open my heart. Would, Jesus, would you come in? Not that, but thank you for saving me. Our first prayer ought to be a prayer of gratitude. And again, it's because God is sovereign. He is sovereign in calling His elect people unto Himself. The Spirit's work of regeneration is an aspect of God's sovereign rule over His creation. Why does Jesus say to Nicodemus, at the very beginning, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God? Why doesn't He say, unless one is born again, he can't believe? And He's going to go on to say that, essentially. In John chapter 10 and John chapter 6. Why doesn't he say that to Nicodemus? Unless one is born again, he can't believe. Unless one is born again, he can't actually know who I really am. Well, I think there's a connection to what he's teaching Nicodemus. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It is the sovereign rule of God over our salvation by which the Spirit grants us the effectual call and the new birth by which we see the kingdom. It is when we are made subjects of the kingdom through the sovereign initiative, through the kingly rule of our God, that we see the kingdom. Finally, that we see it. You can only truly see the kingdom if you're a member of it. You can only truly see the king for who he is if you bend the knee to him by faith. And so part of the kingdom of God is our regeneration. That we would be born of the Spirit from above. And so I ask you this evening, have you been born of the Spirit? Have you been born again? Has the sovereign Lord of the universe moved in your heart to change it from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, from a heart of hardness, callousness, bitterness, and anger to a heart of faith and love for God and neighbor. See, only God, only God can perform that kind of heart surgery. He's the only one. He does it by His Spirit. And so my prayer for you is that you would indeed look to Christ and believe in Him that you would see in Him the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we...
thank you for this text. We thank you for the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. In many respects, it's a difficult teaching, particularly the connections between water and and the new birth, water and the Spirit, and these sorts of things. But Father, we thank you. We thank you that the fundamental message of the text is clear, that you are sovereign in the salvation of sinners, that if we were left to ourselves, none of us would have hope, but you haven't left us to ourselves, but you in your mercy and compassion have granted to your elect people the effectual call. This is all of your grace from first to last. And so we worship and adore you for it. And Father, we pray that if there are any here this evening among us who haven't yet been born again, that you might grant that as they've heard your word preached this evening, that word might indeed not simply be a general call, but that you might through it and through the powerful working of the Spirit issue forth the effectual call that you might grant that they would be made a new creation in Christ Jesus, our Lord. For we ask it in his name. Amen.